We have teamed up with 500 Startups' CVC Insider Series, where top CVC practitioners offer advice and best practices regarding common challenges encountered within corporate venturing. Featured this week is an interview with David Hayes of BP Ventures and Nicolas Sauvage of TDK Ventures. Today you're in for a treat. Uh, David Hayes, managing partner at uh, BP Ventures, is extremely experienced about corporate venturing. And even in the last 15 minutes when we were doing our setup check, I already learned a few things. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, learning more from David today, and I'm sure you're going to learn a lot. David, would you like to take five, 10 minutes to introduce uh, yourself and how you got into corporate venturing? Sure. Uh, thanks, Nicholas, and, and, and thanks, um, Albert and, and everyone at 500 um, Startups. This is super cool to be a part of this uh, this, this group of, of conversations. I'm really, really happy to be here. Um, yeah, so my, my path to venture, um, actually, I think it was Jacqueline uh, from Munich Re that said that she, she didn't know what corporate venture was or venture capital was before she got into it. And I'm, I'm absolutely in that camp. I started life in BP uh, almost 19 years ago now as a financial accountant. Um, in fact, sort of tracking my history back to, to how I got there at the, at the age of 11, um, so 30, almost 30 years ago now, I did a, a week's work experience in an accounting firm, um, read a bit about the subject, and my, my sort of childhood brain at the time saw accountants as these kind of white knights looking after the, you know, the, the investors, the mom and pop investors that you know, wanted to protect their money. So. I, I kind of decided that that was the career for me at that time. Um, I did my A-levels, um, went and did a degree in accounting. Um, I'll be honest, I, I think this is actually similar to, to James Mawson. Um, not the best student, I'll be honest. I, I was not doing particularly well in my degree, if I can be candid. Um, but I, I spent the third year of that four-year degree working for BP. And it, it turned uh, my head around. Uh, you know, I, I, I sort of... All, you know, almost immediately knew I wanted to work in energy and actually work for BP. It, it was such a fantastic experience that, that year uh, spent in London um, in, the, in the finance department. Um, so I, I went back to uni, graduated, joined BP as a, as a graduate, and then uh, through uh, evening school uh, and weekend uh, studying, I uh, managed to get my accounting qualification. Um, so, you know, hard slot, four-year degree, and then two and a half years, working and studying at the same time to, to become an accountant. And after my first set of really, really large statutory accounts that I, ha I had to write and get audited, I did my level best to get out of accounting as quickly as possible because it's it, <laughs> that sort of rearward looking view is, is good for some, but I, I thought there was actually more to more to working in energy and more to working at BP. And through through various roles and, and jobs over sort of the next eight years or so, I ended up being the financial controller um, for a little group called Alternative Energy Ventures at the time. And, and this was sort of back in the 2007, I guess-ish timeframe. Um, and so really I was there as the, as the planning and performance um, kind of financial accountant for the group. Uh, you know, I was sort of wheeled out every every month, every quarter to, to update the plan and the, and the view of what we were doing. And, and just started to little by little get a little bit more insight into into what venture capital was and what corporate venture capital was. Um, and I think there was a there was a good conversation. There was a couple of really great folk in the team at the time. Uh, now gone on to do uh, to to do different things, but it was really through engaging with them uh, that I got a little bit more involved in strategy and sort of portfolio shape in terms of coming up with better KPIs. 
um, for the team. And little by little, I started elbowing my way, I think, into the team more broadly to actually help with financial diligence. Um, and so, you know, I think getting a little bit more involved, sort of bringing a bit more of a commercial lens or a financial lens to, uh, to the work that we were doing and the investments we were making. Um, and then 10 years later, here I am, uh, managing partner um, for the commercial side of the, of the group. So my, my role broadly encompasses the investment processes and portfolio management processes, as well as um, the economic modeling uh, for deals and term sheet negotiation, structuring and, and exit sort of management. So um, we're, a, we're a team of about 15 people, but five of us are very much, five or six of us very much focused on a commercial side of things and making sure that we make smart investments and that we, we look after BP's dollars. So yeah, for me, it was, you know, that, that sort of 2007 moment, I had no idea what venture capital was, even as an asset class. Um, and so, you know, various roles of, of stepping through and up the organization to, to now, you know, leading the commercial side. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it's been a fantastic journey. Thank you, David. Um, I'll, I'll start with a very simple question, but I think it's a good one. Uh, about your background, which is you started with a finance background. Yes. How much of that do you think is useful for your current role as well as how much of that could create the wrong bias uh, for making <laughs> the right assessments? <laughs> That's a great question. So, so I, I am biased. I will, I, will, I will state that up front. I think um, a financial accounting uh, qualification or at least a, a basis is, is fundamental to make smart decisions when it comes to investing. Um, you know, I, I think absolutely you can invest through a technology lens, um, but I, I'm actually speaking to a, a class at Berkeley in a couple of weeks on why just the technology isn't enough, right? I, mean, I would say we in BP invest in people, not in technology, because great management teams are required to make these companies successful, but you also need to really focus on the size of the market, the, the, the amount of, um, you know, the product market fit, how they're going to make money. I mean, this is the thing, it's ca you, you've got to be cash accretive. You've got to be able to solve a problem and make money doing it. Otherwise, you, you, you won't be successful. Uh, and so, no, I think, I think it's really key, Nicholas. And, and what I would say is for corporates, um, depending on the model that you have, some of us are very much focused on the strategic, some of us very much focused on the financial. I think having a balance, um, you know, for us at BP, we hold the, if we are going to invest in a company, it's because we see a strategic way for us to work together, whether on um, uh, from a deployment frame where we're actually going to use the technology directly, or maybe it's a value chain participation frame where we're going to be an input or an app or, or by the output of a particular technology. If you can get our interest and if you can find a way for us to work together, there should be strategic value for the parent. There should be value for the startup through that through that relationship. And because that startup seeing value, we as the ventures team should also be able to see value because we expect that business to grow. So I, I think there's even an argument to say that if you get really good financial return on one of your portfolio company, it's likely correlated with the quality and quantity of the learnings back. I would say that's maybe a little, little more difficult to prove. I mean, certainly for us, and, and you know, there's been a change in strategy in terms of how we've invested over the years um, and why we've made investments. And actually, we're, we're we've got our fingers crossed that we have a, a, a pending exit that will you know be that be that one that one that pays for the fund that we're all searching for. Um, and, and actually, it's one where uh, the strategic value or the strategic relationship. Um, went away over, over time and we were able to manage it as a financial investment 
we were able to double down, triple down on that, on that investment. And now we're, we're very hopeful that we're, we're going to have that one that pops and, and sort of pays for everything. So um, I, I would say, I mean, but you do make a good point, Nicholas, because our model has changed. We started in the sort of 2007 timeframe investing in technologies that were directly hedges against what our alternative energy business was doing at the time. You know, BP Alternative Energy uh, was a, a startup itself, a startup inside BP, and then we were a venture capital group inside a startup. And, you know, while they were doing uh, monocrystalline PV, uh, we, we were looking at thin film technologies and they were doing LC ethanol. We were looking at different pathways to different types of biofuel. And there was no strategic link. And maybe we were taking too much technology risk or it could just be the market economics of say an 07 vintage clean tech fund, but that fund you know, didn't do so well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as did a lot of other folk investing at that time. I'd say our second kind of fund, so our second four year investment period, so from around 2010 to, to 14 was, um, was a, a little bit of a transition fund, moving away from just technology investing through to this sort of strategic investing and, and making sure that there was a link between the parent and, and the startup. And that's the way we've been investing ever since. And actually, if we look to our, our future performance, that there is a correlation to your point between good strategic value to the parent and good financial value to the portfolio. So I'm not saying it's all the, always the case, but there's certainly, I think the more you focus in on that and make sure there's alignment, uh, I think you can actually drive that correlation yourself. Very nice. And I'll touch on the alignment. But before that, I want to double click on something you said, which I think is probably for the audience, very important mindset. You mentioned about being a startup inside the company. Can you explain a bit more about what are the um, pitfalls with that, but also what are the benefits of feeling like a startup inside a company? That's a, that's a, that's a tough question. I, I mean, so I, I I mean, the, the frame I used was actually alternative energy was a brand was a brand new business, and we and we were a, a, an entity in that. But I think even now, you know, BP Ventures as part of BP, we we do have to hold ourselves a little differently. We do need to think um, with more agility. We do need to be um, tr try to be quicker than say our organisational design. And I, I think that that sort of mentality of trying to be founder friendly and really balance, I, I'd say, the wants of the parent and the needs of the startup to make sure you can create a win-win situation as opposed to create an imbalanced situation it is really, really key for us. I'd also say we're very active on the portfolio management side of things. And so for virtually every deal, we have a board seat. And so a member of the BP Ventures team will have a fiduciary responsibility to that company. And, and so, you know, we do have to wear the sort of two hats in, in, in conversations. We are, we are for our startups. You know, we are there to make sure that our founders feel as though they have a safe harbor with us as an investor, uh, which I think is critical um, in, in these sort of large corporate, small company uh, relationships. And so I think we do have to think slightly differently. We do have to be for the innovation and the pace. And we do try and have to hold our, our employer and our parent to account in terms of that delivery. Um, so there's, there's a tension there, but it's, to be honest, I, I think it's an enjoyable tension if you if you can manage it in the correct way. But it does. But there are points of misalignment. You can get misaligned, and it does take a lot of conversation and education to make sure everybody understands why the corporate venture unit exists in the company, um, and and what your track record is, and, and what you're delivering, and what the aims are. And I think 
nearly most of the discussion about best practices is about for CVC is about ensuring the best possible alignment while having different stakeholders you need to really serve. And are you entrepreneurs first? Are you about the mothership? All of that is very, very tough. And that's where it leads to my next question, which is on the opposite side of a startup. When you started in 2007, your job and your background, but your job was about measuring financial performance. So you mm-hmm. definitely come with that bias. And, and what I would like to ask is how much of that focus initially helped BP Ventures become what it is today? That's the thing. I mean, I, I think you, you can always lose sight of the financial return, right? It, to be candid, even if every investment we made was a was a ten x cash on cash return, it, it doesn't really move the needle for BP. I think it's I think it's fair to say. Now, obviously, they would appreciate the ten x return on every investment. They would take <laughs> it. <laughs> they would take it. Um, but but it doesn't it doesn't really move the needle. But as I say, I mean, I, I think you can't have one element of value without the other. So you, you do need to you do need to make sure that you're keeping an eye on it. What I would say is, and I think the accounting background or maybe my, my bias towards finance also allows you to be a little bit more flexible around business. Having spent eight years working in a commercial capacity or you know, financial roles, you know that plans are just that, they're plans. They, they change, they flex, different things happen. You can't necessarily meet your numbers every time you, you set them. I'd say the, the one thing that my team and I are comfortable with is whenever we see a business model, we know every single number on there is likely incorrect. Uh, and it's a way of actually through experience building an envelope of comfort around a, a trajectory or, or a, a, you know, how you think a company may evolve over time. So I think you know, looking at the past uh, and getting comfortable with the, the foundation but then using that as more of a guide than necessarily, uh, uh, you know, a set number of sort of markers that you're going to sort of pick up along the way. Um, yeah, I, I just don't think you can ever really take your eye off the commer- the underlying fundamentals of the business you're investing in, because you need to, un- <laughs> to take it up to the, uh, the higher level. The company's if the company isn't making money, it's going to need more cash. And you, as the investor, if you're a good corporate investor, that means you're you're in for the long haul. You're going to have to invest over multiple times, right? You're going to have to be in in the round A and the B and the C. You can't just walk away. So I think having an understanding of the fundamentals of the business, how it can grow, and what that sort of lifetime cash requirement is going to be is, is, is key. Very nice. So let me ask about moving the needle, because I think that's a good one. First, mm-hmm. uh, just for the audience, could you share your annual budget fund size, the size of BP itself? And what would BP Ventures moving the needle for BP look like? The size of BP itself start, um, I think we're depending on the share price in the sort of 70-ish billion market capitalization in, in and around that range. Um, BP Ventures, uh, we have invested around $850 million to date. Um, but what I'd, I'd point out is those first several years of investing, we were investing you know, I'd say between zero and 50, actually. Um, we had a few years where it was, it was really quite low. Um, for the last two or three years, we've invested around $150 million a year. And our forward-looking plan is to maintain somewhat that level of, of, of investment. Um, I will say we, we recut our 10-year plan every year. 
And so <laughs> there is the opportunity for that to change. But I think we feel as a, as a group that in and around that 150 for the, for the current activity set and the current focus and support we provide BP is, is roughly, roughly um, uh, the right order of magnitude. Um, so 850 million to date, we've invested in around 60 companies through that. I would say 40 of those, 35 are still live. Um, and in terms of what we've delivered to the parent, um, I, I would say we feel fairly good with, with that track record. Um, obviously, that, that first one, as I mentioned, was, was, a, was a wash, was a zero. Uh, but if we look to the sort of the next uh, sort of 10, 12 years of investing, um, we've got much more focus on strategic agreements or commercial arrangements with these companies, some of which have yielded you know, fantastic returns to, uh, to BP um, for, for the dollars invested and, uh, and hopefully have enabled those businesses to grow. And, and we've got a few that are going through the sort of pathway to exit right now. So uh, yeah, I, we, we, are, we are certainly small in comparison to the big BP, but as part of the, the R&D ecosystem, let's call it within BP, I think you've got VC, obviously you, you know, internal R&D, sort of university relationships, M&A and, and sort of JVs and partnerships. I would say that our, our feeling of how we're positioned from a capital perspective is, is probably quite reasonable considering the risk return and, and, and you know, the, the, the scope that we can, we can get our arms around with the team size that we have. Very nice. And, and maybe from a tactical point of view, how do you document all these successes uh, to R&D and to the businesses? And how do you put that into a storytelling? Yeah, storytelling, that, that, can, that can be a bit of a challenge. Um, you know, fundamentally, corporate VC is quite a complicated activity set, right? So certainly, if you're investing in it for, for different things in different places, you know, so, so we started, as I say, investing in hedging technologies, essentially, and, and we've spent the last you know, 10 or so years investing for deployment. Uh, so opportunities to access technology. And I say now we're also dipping our toe in the sort of try before you buy or invest to acquire. And that's partly because we've created a, a fantastic new vehicle for us called BP Launchpad, which is um, a scale-up vehicle where we, where we would take majority ownership throw resources at, 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 a, at an idea and then try and get it to a scale where it's actually more material and meaningful for BP. So I think that that whole piece of being able to invest for learning, invest for deployment and invest for acquisition, kind of the three the three legs of the stool for corporate VCs is important. Um, you know, we, we have invested where the, the strategic value is qualitative. So an investment in, in um, a fast charging uh, battery technology company was really around putting our weight, BP's weight behind ultra fast charging as a, as a concept. Um, there, there was no real way we were, we were going to be buying those batteries or using those batteries in our operations, but it was really around creating market pull in a particular way. Um, we've got companies where we've deployed them and, and that's actually our business unit reports back to us the dollars on the P&L that they think they've generated from revenue or they think they've saved through, through cost savings. So I would say from a strategic value perspective, you know, we take a, where we can, and I say this is probably in nine out of 10 cases, we take a very quantitative approach where the business reports to finance the value that they've seen from the deployment. And then we, we hold that as, as MI. And then obviously our, our returns on investment are, you know, cash in, cash out. Um, but we try, we try and package that all a bit in terms of a, a story around individual funds because they do have slightly different strategies 
and a slightly different return on investment profile strategic versus financial. Okay, very nice. Um, so one thing that's very obvious is you have had a few changes of CEOs. Yes. And uh, when I started, people said you're only a CVC when you have survived one CEO change. Mm -hmm. I think you've done four of them. But on top of that, you have a few changes even on the structure of the investment committee. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the transitions and maybe what you've learned through these transitions about best practices? Very high level to start. Sure. Yeah. No. So I think you're. I think you're right. We we did start when when it was um, Lord Brown, and now you know Bernard Looney took over um, in in February of last year. So yeah, I think fourth CEO. I'd say largely maybe our third, if not our fourth iteration of the investment committee. And I, I'd definitely say our third mode of investing uh, in, in terms of what we're looking for. Um, I think, uh, you, you, what to say, you've got to be open to, to tell the story again and, and sort of re-explain and, and retread ground, I think, in terms of why, why corporates venture, why, why does your corporate venture in, in the particular way that it does, you know, what has the track record been and what have the lessons learned? As I say, it's, it's, it's a kind of a complicated activity set to get your head around with a number of different levers. And I, I think spending the time and being open to talk to whether it's new investment committee members or a, a new business unit CEO or, or whatever it is, is just have that have that dialogue and be very transparent. I think just taking taking the time to actually walk folk through you know, how you do an economic model for a startup, how you forecast strategic value deployment. You know, what is, why is the governance process what the governance process is? There's, a, there's always a bit of a story and a track record. I mean, you know, for us, we, we changed from um, a, an investment committee that was essentially just the head of a, a business unit. Um, because we were investing in hedges, there was always a bit of conflict between what the business was doing and what we wanted to do. And that had to be managed in, in, in the right way. We then moved to an investment committee that was very technical focused. Um, And obviously, the, the technical experts we had around the table had long track records of technology not working. And so it's having the right dialogue and making sure that you can actually narrow in on the perspective that, that made sense for the, for the investment that was being considered at the time. I say now we have an investment committee that's very strategic focused. It's, it's about the, you know, does this, does this have strategic fit with BP? What is the value from that strategic fit within BP? And then it's the question of, well, why do we need to use venture capital to access that strategic fit? You know, I think they're all they're all great questions, but there's certainly a different perspective of, you know, going from, you know, is is it going to work? To you know, we tried that before and maybe we shouldn't do it again. And, and then now, you know, does it does it fit with the company in this energy transition that we're going through? So yeah, it's um, you just got to be you just got to know what you're doing, I think, and, and know how to articulate it. I think that's key for to manage those transitions. Very nice. And talking about investment committee, a uh, um, normal question is to ask what's the size of the investment committee? And you had the chance to have multiple iterations. So what do you think is a good size for an investment committee? Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. Whenever we talk about investment committee, we have to also understand, I think, the level at which it operates within the organization. Um, because we can just say, oh, my investment committee is five members. If that's your the five most senior people in your organization, that's probably going to be quite challenging in terms of getting people to actually get around a meeting to actually consider an investment case. So, I mean, I, I would say our prior incarnation, so, so not the one we're operating now, but previously, um, was was maybe too large. And, and I think we had, um, we had a gentleman um, come in and sort of give us a, a kind of a view of industry best practice. 
And he pointed out that our investment committee was larger than BP's main board, which, so I think, I think roughly, roughly, there's probably 10 or 10 or 12 members. You know, it's, it's quite hard to get, I think, consensus around an idea when you have that many. And right different now, time zones, I guess. Well, I mean, this is, this is the thing, diarizing an investment committee meeting, it can present a real challenge. And when you're wanting to move at pace and get that term sheet out quickly, because it's a competitive deal, you 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 have got to move. So I would say we, we've slimmed it down. It's now four members um, and uh, two represent kind of more of a functional bias, so finance and legal. And then our, our chair is is David Iton, the EVP of Innovation and Engineering in BP, and he's been the chair of our investment committee now for, probably going to get this wrong, maybe seven or eight years. Uh, and then we have uh, an SVP of um, strategy uh, engaged. And so it's really trying to focus in on what is that strategic fit. Um, is, is four people too many or too few? I, I think it's working right now. Um, you know, we've got a good cadence. We have an investment committee every month locked into the diary, but we have the flexibility enough with four people to move it around if we need to or, or get one out of cycle. So, so I, I think I think you know what we have right now is certainly working from my perspective, and it's it's been this way for I guess six months or so. So, you know, I mean, time will tell. Very nice and. So you do a monthly for, um, investment committee. What happens if you don't have investment proposals to make? Is that a reporting time or you just cancel it? We, we um, it, it, it kind of depends. So we, we can give the time back if we've got nothing. We have, I mean, it's worth reflecting, you know, BP's just gone through a massive transformation of, of itself as a, as a company it's announced by Bernard in, in February on our, our net mission to net zero. Um, And, and so there is a lot of reprogramming the organization going on right now, and ourselves included. You know, of our four-member investment committee, only one of those members actually knows us as people, right? So we're having to, you know, engage with those three other folk, you know, not only through the venture activity, but through our lines of, of influence within your legal function and finance function, everything else, to, to really explain why we're doing what we're doing. Um, so, you know, there's certainly something we have to do there to, to, to try and engage and get everybody on the same page. So we have been repurposing those sessions. Sorry to answer your question. To re, we have been repurposing a, a couple of those sessions for that education piece. Um, but normally, if we if, if everything was working, if we did have a meeting, we'd, we'd probably give it up. Or maybe do a portfolio review of a couple of um, interesting companies. Very nice. Now, I want to shift gear and move to something which is probably important, especially when you look at all the new CVCs coming up. Mm -hmm. uh, GCV talks about between 20 and 25% of minority equity investments from corporate are new corporates. Mm -hmm. So clearly there's a need to raise a bar. That's also why we yep. do these interviews. Um, what's your view about how to measure the quality of the CVCs and what would be meaningful benchmarks? Yeah, quality is a, a tough word. Um, I mean, I, I mean to touch on your earlier point, Nicholas. I, I think lo longevity of activity is a is a is a yardstick. I think we all need to be reaching for. Um, you know, we, we can all reflect. Corporate VCs historically haven't had great reputations in the market, right? You know, let's let's ignore the the whole dumb money comment that used to be thrown our way because I, I kind of don't believe that's the case. Um, You know the, the whole concept of being you know being able to invest in a company once and then sort of just you know, hang out on the cap table and 
you know, just sort of ride along. I, I don't, I don't agree with that as a, as a, as a sort of investment mentality. You know, I think if you, if you've got the privilege, privilege of sitting on a cap table and you're a big name, everyone's going to ask the question, well, why aren't they following on? What, what's wrong with the technology? Why, why don't they support us anymore? You know, I think you've got to go into this with a long-term mentality. It's a, a commitment. It is a commitment, you know. And this is the thing. I'd say when we started this, we thought those commitments would probably be, I don't know, three to seven years. The fact is that that was maybe the case 10, 15 years ago, that companies stayed private, you know, three to seven years. What we're seeing now with the various market dynamics that we're facing, companies are staying private longer and longer and longer. Now, obviously, there's the whole SPAC thing, which we, we maybe don't need to get into right now. Um, but th these are long-term relationships. I mean, and, and that's what, that's how we see them. We see them as relationships. They're not investments. You, you essentially get married to your, to your founders, right? And okay, surely there can be some changes through the evolution of a company. Um, but these are long-term commitments. We, we hold that we will be in our companies probably seven to 10 years. Uh, and to be, to be honest, how we think about our funds is four years of investment. And then six to eight years of, of unwinding. It's probably more like eight years of unwinding. So we're talking about a twelve-year uh, commitment there for, for companies. And you know, having a view of lifetime investment and what the capital frame of that company is going to be is, is going to help you manage that and help manage your internal stakeholders as well. You know, having the freedom to follow on and make those smart investment decisions um, to make sure you're obviously looking after your parent company capital. Um, but making sure that the incremental economics of investments are actually making sense, you know, that, that's, that's something you have to do. You can't just do one and done. So I'd say longevity is definitely something in there. Um, I think consistency uh, is, is somewhat similar, slightly different is, you know, you, you're not changing your model too much. You're not changing board members too frequently that they, they know they're going to have a team that is actually going to be there throughout that journey okay there may be some changes so i think making sure that the, the folk that you have in your team are part of some sort of accelerator program internally that are kind of spinning in and spinning out and going on to do other things i think making sure you can incentivize your staff um making sure they get they, they feel good about the job they're doing that they feel a commitment from the company to them to, to do this activity i think creating that kind of long-term mindset both on an investment place and, and on a team kind of dynamic i think i think is actually important I think consistency, especially around behaviors, is what defines a brand. So if you yeah. want to be known for certain things, you have to be extremely consistent. Um, I want to triple click on something you mentioned about the follow-on investments, because indeed, mm -hmm. it's a commitment. You're serving the entrepreneurs. Um, how do you think about the follow-on in investments? And I want to understand, when would you decide not to do a follow-on investment? When would you simply do a prorata? And when would you consider a super prorata? What would be the considerations? Oh, great questions, Nicola. Um, sorry, Nicholas. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so in, in terms of follow-ons, all the way back in the distant beginning of BP Ventures, every single dollar we put into a company had to go to investment committee. So that meant every single follow-on uh, had to be re-approved, which presented a couple of challenges certainly for you as a, as a board member or a person engaging with the company. Because even though you're wearing your fiduciary hat and we, we have a, a separation between shareholder and board member responsibility. So for the companies I sit on the board of, I don't get to make a decision as to whether or not we follow on. That makes right. sense. So, someone else in the team is charged with that to keep me clean, you know, focused on the company and they, they take the shareholder view to make sure we manage any, any sort of dynamic there. Um, 
but we have moved to a place now where we um, we take initial investment cases forward with a with a concept of lifetime investment. Now, obviously, that can't be from birth to to, to death. It's more from a, a stage kind of perspective. So, if you're investing in a Series A, your lifetime investment probably gets you through to your Series C kind of growth phase. You know, if it's later, it's probably something a little different. So, we, so we do try and articulate that. Um, and then follow-ons are actually managed within the team. So um, there's a delegated authority from our chairman of the investment committee um, down to the, the team to actually manage those follow-ons in a, in a, in a structured way. And, and typically what we do when engaging in a follow-on is, is making sure that the, uh, there's still strategic alignment and, and understanding that the strategic relationship. Also understanding if there's maybe something that's become misaligned and through following on, we can actually realign. That, that relationship. And that could be as simple as, um, you know, the technology was developing in this way and it's going great and the business is really happy, but now the business actually wants something different to happen. And so we can actually use our investment to direct maybe a, a, a branching technology or, or a different uh, sort of flavor of the technology as part of the, the, the follow-on funding. Um, so that's one piece. But ultimately we have the authority when strategic alignment goes away to manage our investments from a financial basis, to just to make sure that we are, you know, that the business is performing, it still makes sense, it may have pivoted, it may not have, maybe it's just our strategy has changed. We're able to manage it as a financial investment, making sure that we keep an eye on our strategic value return and the financial value return as a combined IRR of the portfolio. Um, but to your question on, on not following on, my, it, it's the hardest decision to take. So let me ask for, we typically say that we will pro, we, if a company is performing pro rata, we want to maintain our state, allowing for the fact that if it's a, if it's a big, big new round, the new investor will set how much is available to, you know, to, to, to the insiders. We'll always be flexible there. Um, you know, sometimes we really, really want to take our 10%, but the rounds oversubscribed. So maybe we come down a little bit. You know, we, we try and facilitate what, what goes on and take a sensible view. You know, where we see, real strategic alignment and maybe it's in this try before you buy mentality we might then sort of double down triple down and get you know increase our ownership with the idea of potentially acquiring in the future um but the the, the decision to not follow on i mean it's the decision we all hate uh, we hate having to have that conversation um is you know aside from sitting on the board of a company and, and realizing that you've you've got a cash crunch and you you need to maybe let a, let a few folk go. I would say the decision to follow on is the, is the hardest investment decision um, you'll get to make. But sometimes some ideas just don't just don't work. They're just not scaling. They just aren't generating the, the margins that they were set out to do. Um, we try and do it in, in the, the gentlest way possible. I know that, that sound like total BS. Um, but we, what we will try and do is facilitate as much as possible either handing off to a new set of investors or being there to answer questions as to why and really opening ourselves up to, to sort of explain the decision. Um, you know, we, we, we realize the weight and name carries on someone's cap table and our decision to not follow on is, is, is terrible for, for the company. Um, and we, we've got to manage it in a sensitive way. Yeah, no, I, I haven't gone through that, but I can imagine it would be very hard. Um, actually, there is one thing which I find very interesting in what you said, which is new concept for me, which is when when you invest in the company, there is clearly a strategic alignment. Mm -hmm. 
But you mentioned something which I didn't think about, which is at some point, maybe the strategic alignment goes away and you need to follow the investment. Uh, and what you're saying is actually it makes sense to be in, in the team of BP Ventures to decide to follow investments because one, it's not your fault or the entrepreneur's fault the strategic alignment goes, but you continue to serve the entrepreneurs. You, you continue to serve your portfolio companies. And so the question is, would follow investments take into account the strategic alignment still to decide, for example, between a prorata and a super prorata, or it's really purely about financial and serving the entrepreneurs? I'd, I'd say it's almost purely around the serving the entrepreneur and, and what makes sense to the company um, and for us from a from a financial metric basis. I mean, I, I'd say so in our previous incarnation, um, we had a financial IRR target and a strategic value target for every deal as we took it to investment committee. We've now blended those together, but the ventures team and the commercial team still maintains a target on both of those, even if they're not communicated, and actually also has a materiality threshold that it wants to maintain as we as we go in. Um, so, so when it comes to follow-on, if say the, the strategy is just totally changed and we're no longer going to do X in Y region, and so the company doesn't work, we, we would, as a base case, if the company is performing, pro rata. Um, you know, not not saying we're we're going to commit to that or anything else, but just as a rule of thumb, or a hypothesis to be disproven, let's say we would expect to maintain our ownership um, if if it makes good financial sense. If we still see line of sight to a liquidity event where we will um, where we'll return capital, um, and, and that's to be honest why we are quite rigorous on that financial piece. To, to go back to your earlier earlier questions, as we go into an investment. We want to. We don't just want to invest in good businesses for BP. We want to invest in good businesses because they. We we need to be able to continue to support them. So we need a good reason to be able to continue to support them from a financial basis in the future, just in case. Just in case. I would, I would say we, we're losing. We're get losing alignment less frequently now than we used to. No, I think that's a golden nugget, and and I want to push it to the limit. Let's okay. assume that. And Hit me. <laughs> <laughs> you have a. This portfolio company, strategic alignment, you invest in them. Uh, the strategic alignment goes away, but this company is like this unicorn. This is mm -hmm. financially where you want to actually double down. Is that a case where even though the strategic alignment is gone, you would go super pro rata? I mean, I, I wish I'd had. I wish I had an experience to reflect on, Nicholas, in terms of having a unicorn in the portfolio. Um, <laughs> uh, we haven't had one yet. Soon. <laughs> to be to be honest, we, we've just gone through a conversation around um, a follow-on um, because of the the process it's going through, um, and it was outside the delegated authority for the team to actually write that check. And so we did have conversations with with more senior folk, and. I guess to do the math, we, we did we did go more than our pro rata um, because we saw the value. And, and so I would say never say never. Um, you know, I think you know, there's a lot of smart people in BP, um, you know, a lot of you know, commercial um, you know, experience. Uh, so I think presented with the right opportunity and the balance of risk reward, yeah, I, I'd, I'd say we probably would. Even even though you know I, I can I can hear the chair of our investment committee saying we're, we're a strategic investor first and foremost and, and we are we are I, I think we are flexible though we do try and be flexible we know we know these companies are going to need different things at different times and they're going to evolve in a in a way that we probably don't expect and so I I, I would hope if we were presented 
with an opportunity where um, it was a real good financial return um, that we would be able to be able to do that. I think your point is very nuanced. You are a strategic uh, CVC. You invest for strategic reasons. You're financially minded. When it comes to the follow investments, it's you being entrepreneurs first. And I think this nuance is very important to understand and, and, and a golden nugget as far as I see it. Now, I want to move to a question. Oh, sorry, you wanted to add something. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, I think the founders first mentality is something that we we work very hard on, even even at the initial in, initial investment. So, you know, if if we're lead, well, we, we, we don't, we like to lead term sheets. I would say we don't mind following, we don't mind syndicating, but we like to lead. We like to lead because we make sure our term sheets, if, if, if it's a series A and there's no rounds before us, you will find the most vanilla, inoffensive, blank sort of sheet, NVCA, BVCA, whichever VCA standard term <laughs> sheet. One X non-participating preferred shares with no dividends, Right, we, 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 we know that we need to build, the, the, the most critical part here is building alignment between the founding team and the management team and you as an investor, right? You, you've got to create the win-win dynamic. You've got to create the right relationship of trust and being in it together and wanting to deliver together. Um, you know, I think there's some really, there can still, there can be really aggressive term sheets out there. And unfortunately we've had to, in certain cases, you know, put pay to plays in or, or multiples on liquidation. Never at a Series A, but you know, later on, you know, when when th when things, uh, things things change. But I think actually, you know, your manage you need your management team to be on board. Right, you've yep. got to have that alignment. You've got to you've got to be founder friendly, founder first. Uh, it's, it's kind of family. So, uh, actually, I'll give credits to um, 500 startups. I attended one of their program called VC Unlocked, and one of my top learning from this uh, training, which is two weeks. Mm -hmm. was if you start to be tough on terms like at seed or series A, that's actually not good for you as an investor because the terms get even tougher after that. And you start to stack terms that actually are not good for you as an early investor. And so it's very short-sighted to try to go anything beyond vanilla and, and what's um, market. It is. And actually, my, my advice to founders is to not be so concerned with pre-money valuation. Be far more concerned with all the other terms in there. Now, I know there's a certain amount of personal pride in, in the valuation of your company, but it's better to build a story of growth of value rather than have someone come in and think you're overpriced and then put a 2x liquidation preference on or, or add participation rights. I, I think it's better to grow more slowly based on the fundamentals and trying to keep the liquidation stack as clean as possible because it has just alignment through the stack um, and you, it, will, it will serve you over time. And I think it sounds like a really good advice to entrepreneurs, but actually it's really good advice for investors. So I have a question. So we're moving to KPIs now, but I have a question from Ueno-san that's really good, which is about how do you build a CVC team? And I want to start with how do you build a CVC team that will have a really good alignment with your mothership? Yeah, it's interesting. So, I mean, if we go back to the, and our, our team has, has just changed. We've actually um, seen, you know, we're a team of roughly 16 people and we've just had six colleagues uh, from ventures previously leave and six new colleagues join. So we're actually a team in, in, in transition. Uh, the primary incarnation of the team, most of those folk actually came from technical roles within the organization. And so they're able to speak the same language when it comes to you know, pain points and technology deployments and you know, why technology should, should work or 
and that kind of thing. So they have that internal network of being able to do sort of talk the same language. So I think interconnectivity is actually really important in corporates, certainly when you're wanting to drive strategic value. Um, you know, I think hiring in folk from external where they don't have that internal network is probably quite tough. Now, we've got a couple of great folk that we brought in from external. So Megan Sharp, who's our head of ventures, um, you know, joined us from, uh, she, she got prior experience in, in VC before joining us. Also PhD, MBA, I mean, honestly, you know, brainiac. Um, and and she, she joined and she managed to build that network in those early days through the, in, in, with her bio PhD with the biofuels team. Um, we've also had Erin Halleck um, joined us from uh, British Growth Fund in the UK, um, and, and she's on that journey right now, sort of building the network internally, but being able to leverage you know, strong technology experience and investing experience to do so. I think having a good mix of folk that are interconnected into your corporation and folk that uh, maybe in, you know, hires in. We've, we've also hired in folk from the venture debt market, from other corporate VCs, and so while they may, may not have the network, they at least know how the game gets played inside a corporate VC unit. So they can kind of talk the same language. Um, I think having a good mix of commercial skills and technical skills as well is, is critical. I mean, let's be honest, we're, we're all trying to move to a much more DNI type mindset here, not only just in terms of how people look, but how people think and act and behave. And, and I would say, you know, we, we, we are taking the you know, DNI best practice from BP into the ventures team and actually trying to push it out into our portfolio, you know, promoting good DNI practice when it comes to hiring and, and, and you know, as, as we look for changes and everything else in, in, in management teams and, and even board structures, right, trying to push DNI. So I think having a diverse group of individuals, but that are all passionate about technology, commercially sharp, and love leaning in and working with founders. I mean, that, that's a good corporate VC team in my mind. It's interesting you mentioned Megan and DNI. I remember the first time I went to GCVI, uh, January 2019, Megan was um, uh, on stage um, with three other women talking about diversity. And she made a point that I thought was super, which is, how can we talk about diversity when we are all women in the panel? Yeah. And and so maybe that's something we will uh, invite Megan for a special edition of this series. But I, I think that, it's she'd not love that. A, sorry i'm sure she'd love that yeah uh no she she I actually at that event she was the one who impressed me the most so i definitely want to invite her in some form or another um when we talk about let's talk about inclusion because maybe this is the one that's talked less and less obvious how do you um, encourage inclusion for your portfolio companies in a way that works versus just telling them and what happens? Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question because there's only so much influence you can have as a board member. Um, and, and to an extent, there's only so much influence you should have as, as a board member as well. But the, the team has to has to deliver and work together. But I, I think as, as with the leadership, we, we try and take into safety and, and good health and safety practices. It, it's making sure it's those top of everybody's mind. Um, not saying you can necessarily manage this stuff with KPIs, but sure you can have a diversity KPI that you're showing. But if the if the people that are seen as diverse aren't included, you've you've failed. Um, so I mean, the one thing I, I like to have, you know, as, as board director, is that it, it isn't just hearing from the C-suite. 
right? You don't just hear from the CEO and the CFO every board meeting. You want your VP of engineering to come in or your, you want your chief people officer to come in. I think having you know, different perspectives and different levels of folk in the boardroom talking about the company and the company performance and the challenges is, is really important. Um, obviously, without, without COVID and not being able to meet people face-to-face, I think also as a director, you should be meeting the different layers of the organization and, and hearing what they have to say. Um, I, I think through that, you'll uncover you know, challenges or differences in viewpoint or anything else. And I think you know, the more you hear, the more you learn, the more you interact, the more you can then direct the conversation at the top of the house to make sure that the appropriate changes are made. Um, I mean, for, for us, and I think I'm right in saying this, we, we have agreed for every board we sit on, the, the first slide or the first topic of conversation at every board meeting should be health and safety. I don't see why DNI or people, the people agenda doesn't also elevate itself to a similar level. Very nice. Um, I have a really good question from Barrett Parkman, and I realized that we touched on it and hinted on it, but we haven't actually really been specific about it, which is beyond driving collaboration between the startup and your own corporation. So beyond that, how do you add value to startups? Good question. Um, I'd like to say, you know, through um, um, you know sitting on the board of the company, um, you know, uh, the, the folk that we have sitting on boards have, have been in the energy space in venture for you know, I'd say between ten and twenty years, um, some some longer, um, either with a strong technical background that can actually help with the particular technology of that company, or with a finance background to help you on your audit committee. Um, you know, that I think there's a different way we can all leverage our skills in. Plus, you know, we're, we're I'd say reasonably well networked in terms of finding co-investors, in terms of finding new employees. Um, we've got a great legal function, a great tax function. We've got a great communications function. We've actually had, uh, you know, a guy, he's no longer with us. He went off to start his own thing, but you know, fantastic at kind of the marketing messaging and the communications messaging. We've, we've had him leverage in and, and actually help story, uh, startups craft their story to the external market. So I think as a, as a company, I'm not saying we're, we're kind of, I'm not saying we're, um, you know, almost a full service shop. We are very conscious of, of our venture offer though. We, we, uh, we are definitely more than dollars. So hopefully you'll get a great board member to, to, to help you grow your company. Hopefully that board member will be able to leverage BP, the parent in, in whatever way necessary. And then, as a, as a group, we're, we're able to find co-investors, introduce you to banks for debt, introduce you to good law firms, IP firms, search firms. Yeah, we, we, will, we will do whatever you need us to do. It's kind of a servant kind of offering, I think, for us. I like the term servant, and I like the fact that everything you touch is what matters for a startup to be successful. Mm-hmm. They need to have the next round of financing. They need to have the right people, the right recruitment, the talent, and all of that. And all the support that seems administrative really helps them. So I think you're being extremely wide in your servant services. So that's really, really important. Now, I finally want to touch about KPIs. Uh, So you've got this 15 years of experience running this corporate VC, uh, many changes over time. Which KPI has stayed pretty much the same? And which ones do you, have you introduced in the last two, three years that you actually feel very good about? So, 
so we we haven't really changed a lot. We we started. I get well. I guess what has changed is we now feel comfortable stating what our KPI is. Um, uh-huh. So okay. so we we started with the idea that you know we would um, operate. Okay, so okay, maybe there's a different one. So we we obviously framed this up in the very early days. You know, venture capital. You invest in ten companies. One is a success. Two wash their face, and the other seven crash and burn. I would say we've now introduced a KPI where we expect our our loss of companies to be far less than 70%. And that's partly because of the strategic programming and, and making sure there's that connectivity. You know, if, if BP can get comfortable with the technology and the company and the startup, we see there's a good business plan and a model, the chance of failure should be lower. So we're saying that we think we can do better than a, a 70% uh, failure rate. We, we think it's actually better than 50%. And when I say failure, it's no strategic dollars and no financial dollars from um, from from engagement. Uh, I think IRR over the the lifetime of the investment is one that stayed pretty consistent. I would say what's happened though is we've increased the the the, the hurdle that we expect to deliver, um, and I think that's largely again because of the strategic alignment and everything else. But also we're, we're a smarter team than we were, um, and we're investing in. Uh, I would say the types of technology that the world's crying out for. And, and so the likelihood of that being valued, I, I think is better than it perhaps was in, in an earlier incarnation. Um, we have a strategic value hurdle that is dollars that we want to deliver back to the parent. We've actually now combined that with the financial into one measure, just to make sure that we are, are balancing them both. As I say though, the commercial team behind the curtain, keep a good eye on both of them separately to make sure we're not, you know, Investing for great strategic value, but the chance of actually you're paying far too high of pre-money, and there might be a down round and everything else. We, you know, we, 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 so we've combined two metrics together. I say we've added one around, um, you know, not you know a failure rate that we want to beat, um, and we are keeping track of of DNI in, in, in terms of diversity uh, in the man in the C-suite of the management team and the next level down, as well as on the board. I'd say that's more of a reporting function to see if we're, our message is landing and if we're able to make inroads. Um, I think that's that's roughly all we all we manage. To, to be so there are two things that I, I like, but let me ask about the DNI KPI. How do you mm-hmm. measure that KPI? Um, each board member reports out uh, to the team in, in terms of the the top positions in the organisation and uh, the makeup of those folk and uh, the board, colleagues on the board. Very nice. And then back to one thing you said, which is now you're comfortable sharing your KPIs externally. Um, Why did you not do it earlier? And why do you think it's so important? And this is really for the audience because it's very hard to feel confident to share your KPIs externally. You might think you're sharing your secret or something you're not supposed to. What would be your your guidance? I mean, I, I think because this is a long-term activity, um, and actually I'm having this conversation right now, you know, if, if all of your, um, if, all, if, if all of the positive returns are forecasts and the actuals are zero, how can you, how can you have any faith in you're actually going to deliver those? I think you have to build a bit of a track record. You have to have some scores on the board to be able to feel as though your model actually works and you can feel comfort in, in your return profile. 
I, I think that's really what it comes down to. If if I if, if you're year one of a, of a CVC and you've made two investments, projecting a thirty percent IRR or whatever it is is okay i mean well good luck i, I hope that's the case <laughs> you, you know um I, I think without a track record it's very difficult for, for anyone to actually really say what their kpis are going to be because they're a target they, they don't actually know yeah okay we are in the last two minutes of our interview i want to end with a inspiring question you went uh, to texas you got blocked in texas <laughs> so clearly there was a lot of Uh, uh, thoughts around energy you must have had at the time. What do you think is the value of corporate venturing to solve these energy-related problems? What what can we expect to see being solved with corporate venturing? Yeah, no, no thanks for your patience with me as I as I was freezing in a in a rental car uh, last month in, in Houston in the middle of their their storm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, look. Uh, We, we we as a company have committed to, to net zero and not just for us, you know, for people and the planet and to help others get there. Um, I, I see ventures as a core part of that strategy and activity of delivery. Um, there are technologies out there that, that we're going to need that are going to transform and they may not be obvious today. So we should be there as a scanning function. We should lengthen the perspective of any corporate that we're working for. We should be raising awareness of potential disruptions raising awareness of technologies that are potentially going to beat what we have internally. Um, finding, the, finding the really smart people out there that have ideas that maybe don't fit into a corporate structure because they don't really like how a corporate feels, that we're there to find them, to fund them, and to grow these companies into you know, the next generation of energy and, and, and how energy is actually going to work in the future. I mean, we're, we're moving from an IOC to an IEC. That's a big transition. Um, we're, we're going to need. We're here to try and help find the people that are going to help us do that because we can't do it alone. It's a perfect way to end an amazing interview. Thank you. Thank you so no, much. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you. Thanks, Bye. everybody. Bye now. Global Venturing Review was produced by In Ear Production. You can find out more by going to inearproduction.com.